So as you know, on Unscalable, we like to speak to people who've adopted an unscalable approach to growing their businesses. And when it comes to being scrappy and doing things that don't scale, there is no better place that can truly test your ability as a founder than Africa. So today I'm super excited to have Mike Quinn on the show. Mike is co-founder and CEO of Boost, who are on a mission to power the growth of Africa's 100 million informal retail entrepreneurs. Before starting Boost, Mike was a co-founder and CEO of Zuna, one of Africa's first fintech companies. During his 10 years at Zuna, they processed $2.5 billion of transactions and raised $35 million in investment. Now, raising that much funding for an African company is in itself a massive achievement. Uh, Mike has recently published the book, Failing to Win, where he shares the various challenges and failures he had to overcome to get Zuna off the ground. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Great, Gavin. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I haven't read the book myself, but the reviews I'm seeing online are amazing. People have been saying the book is unstoppable. They can't put it down. So I'm really excited to hear um, just more about your story. Um, you know, I'm from South Africa myself. I tried to start a couple of businesses there, small tech companies in SA back in the day. And I know how, how incredibly hard it is to get a business off the ground. Um, and that's kind of why I left Africa. There were more opportunities in the UK. Yet you moved from Canada to Africa. So I'm curious, like, what made you decide to pack up and leave Canada for Africa? The big turning point of my life was back in, uh, I think, 2001, where I joined an organization at university called Engineers Without Borders. I was studying mechanical engineering and, and kind of looking for purpose in my life and how I could apply the skills I was learning to something that could do good in the world. And I knew I wasn't very mechanically inclined. I didn't actually want to go and just work in the uh, the oil industry, which is kind of where the jobs were, were flowing at the time. And uh, with Engineers Without Borders, when I graduated, they sent me to Ghana in West Africa for a volunteer placement. And I spent a year working with them there um, on a rural agriculture project and just really fell in love with the continent, the people. Um, I had uh, firsthand experiences with poverty for the first time in my life and also just saw a tremendous opportunity. And I, I just saw all these like challenges that I felt could be overcome with a, an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, I did a second placement with them in Zambia. And then uh, I, I had a, a brief sabbatical, I guess, where I went and spent two and a half years uh, studying higher education in the UK because um, I knew I couldn't be a, a volunteer for the rest of my life. And and I, I didn't feel like I had any, any really business skills to start my own business. Um, so I did a master's in international development and I, I got a really lucky break to, to get into the Oxford site business school um, on a scholarship for social entrepreneurship to do an MBA. And uh, that was really the start of my entrepreneurial journey because I, I came up with this idea um, of connecting uh, impact investors that I, I kept meeting in like the UK and people that were coming to these conferences and events talking about wanting to invest in Africa and, and, and um, finding these purpose-driven uh, entrepreneurs building scalable companies, but not knowing where to look. And I, I created a business card with the logo that said African Enterprise Partners and uh, put my hand up and said, I could go solve this problem for you. I convinced one of them, which was a fund based in the US um, that I got connected to through a, a lecturer um, to buy me a plane ticket to Zambia. Um, so this was early 2009. And um, I, I landed, uh, actually never forget it because it was, it was just like a, a stroke of amazing serendipity or coincidence where um, the first email I sent to uh, an American guy that I had, had known um, in Zambia from when I was previously there introduced me to Brad and Brett McGrath, who were these two brothers um, that were starting this uh, technology company with a vision of a cashless Africa. 
And uh, this is like Lusaka in 2009. There was no fintech industry. There was no startup ecosystem. Uh, Zambia was a country of 13 million people. Over 90% of the population was unbanked. And these two guys had this technology um, that they were, they were trying to get uh, companies to use to pay small-scale farmers for their crops digitally into mobile phones. Um, and there was no iPhones at the time. This was all just um, a, a very kind of nascent industry. And then I got to know them a little bit and, uh, and saw, saw the potential of this model. Um, and then meanwhile, this company um, in Kenya emerged called Mpesa. And we, we started tracking it where Mpesa was really one of the first fintechs on the planet and uh, the most successful, definitely mobile money offering or mobile money service. And they launched a, a, a service that gave people the ability to send and receive money transfers using their phone um, with a network of informal agents that would be like human ATM machines. And so instead of like a, a bank rolling out a branch or an ATM that requires uh, power and electricity and cash, um, you could have like a small retail shop with a phone and a guy with a cash box that could do cash in, cash out transactions for people in the community um, that could then... Uh, use that, you know, that agent in order to to get like these banking services or, or to send and receive money transfers or to pay their bills. And this was happening in Kenya and started growing virally. And we had this audacious vision to say, well, maybe we could bring this to Zambia and uh, uh, started rolling out a money transfer service. It, it turned out the farmer payments one um, as an example of failing. Um, we tried, but it was it was hard. It was seasonal. Um, we, we never really got that one to click. But um, as soon as we we launched this this person-to-person money transfer service by rolling out these agents in different towns. Uh, slowly but surely, um, we started acquiring customers that would start sending money transfers, you know, on a monthly basis for paying school fees or hospital bills or medicine or sending remittances to their family if, if they were a salaried employee and, and were taking care of dependents. And um, I'd love to say it took off, but it was like three years really of, of bootstrapping and um, and just trying to figure out how to make this work. Um, then circling back to, I guess, the, the beginning of your question of, um, I, I was so enthralled by the vision. And as I started getting to know these brothers better and seeing the opportunity, um, I helped close uh, what was one of the first really pre-seed investments in an African startup. It was a $200,000 investment back in 2009 um, from the, the investor that, that bought me my plane ticket. Um, and then I convinced my parents uh, a few months later to mortgage their house and wire me $100,000. Um, and that, that was, a, a, looking back, it was kind of a crazy moment. But um, I, I, I wanted to go all in. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I really believed in these guys and, and the vision they had. Um, and I wanted to be a partner in that. And um, luckily, I just had amazingly supportive parents who um, weren't rich and would normally never do something like that. So it was... Uh, it was a, it was a crazy time, but that's that's how we got it started. It's an amazing story. Um, so yeah, obviously you were saying that you kind of raised a seed round. Uh, now I have a few friends in South Africa who have startups. They've been trying to raise money for years. Um, did you find it like challenging to raise capital for an African sort of startup? Yeah, so it was uh, challenging. Is is a huge understatement, um, and uh, I, I probably need to do some context setting here because. Uh, like now this year, um, Africa's on a tear. They, they've raised like, um, I think over, over $2 billion of venture capital has flown into Africa startups in like the first like nine months, um, uh, which is a, a record. Um, you know, uh, there's been, I think, four unicorns this year of like billion dollar companies that have emerged. 
And um, so there is an ecosystem and there's capital flowing into Africa now and from like global players. Um, but back in like, you know, 2009 to 2012, when we, when we raised our, our series A round in 2012, um, there was nothing. Um, there was no venture capital. There was um, uh, really like foundations and donor money that was going to fund uh, like aid projects and development projects. And there were, um, uh, there were private equity firms um, and investors uh, that, you know, if you had a, a profitable business that's um, like generating cash for several years in a row, you could find money for that to like scale it. Right. And, and in South Africa, where there's a lot of capital there, that was like primarily um, what people were funding. But um, we, we got this like American um, $200,000 investment to get us started in, in 2009. And then, you know, bootstrapped and like I got my you know parents money and, the, you know, Brad and Brett put in some and we brought in a fourth partner, uh, Keith, who brought some money to the table and, um, and then uh, just funny side story, the, the, the chairman of the organization I volunteered with, Engineers Without Borders, um, uh, happened to get the job as the Google CFO um, right when we were starting. And so I had this relationship with him and uh, started pestering him. And he came in as an angel investor in 2010. Um, so we were like a Zambian fintech startup with the Google CFO as an angel investor. Um, but even he was trying to convince other people to invest in us. And everybody said, are you crazy? Like this, like so much risk. It's, we don't know anything about Africa. Do people need like mobile money or payments there? Um, and, um, and so uh, we, we kind of scraped together this money and um, wasted a lot of it because we didn't really know what we were doing. We weren't focused enough. Like I was a first time entrepreneur and, and the, the brothers made me CEO after working with them for a while. Um, and uh, really to, to put me in this position where it's like we, we knew like, hey, let's go raise some money internationally. And, and Mike, you, you have the network and the experience. So, um, you know, I, I felt like I knew nothing, but I was like, um, you know, faking it until I make it, I guess, at the time. And uh, we just slowly but surely like kept getting a bit of traction. Like so like the results were growing, um, we, you know, our customers, we were acquiring them and they were using the service organically and telling friends. So we were spreading word of mouth and just um, building these different products and testing them. So like the, the business um, was, was starting to grow very, very slowly off a low base. But um, but the, the opportunity was like as clear, you know, as clear as day to us. We knew we're like, hey, this could be huge. And um and it was actually Patrick Pachette, the, the Google CFO, our, our investor, who really challenged me to say, like, Mike, somebody like is going to like build like a, a multi-billion dollar company in emerging markets in Africa in this space. Like you're first to market. Why can't it be you? And, and uh, we already have this vision statement of a cashless Africa. So that really kind of um, created this this uh, this anchor where we said, well, you know, let's go build a billion dollar company. <laughs> right. And I remember um, I said it first and my co-founders looked at me and they said, yeah, sure. Like, good, good luck with that. And like, people almost laughed us out of the room. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as we started talking about like the market opportunity and like how we could get this going in Zambia and then how we could expand it, you know, across like 54 markets in Africa and like become like a, a platform for payments and financial services. Like we're like, Hey, you know, th this is a huge, huge opportunity. And, um, I, 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 uh, I was able to get um, a, a plane ticket to a conference in the U.S., um, a social enterprise conference to go speak on a panel um, that uh, it was actually in New York. But while I was there, um, I bought another plane ticket to San Francisco um, where I, I kind of weaseled my way into a startup pitching event um, that led me to an introduction to a partner at the Omidyar Network. Um, 
and uh, Midyar Network was, uh, you know, the private money of the eBay founder, Piero Midyar, um, and they were investing in emerging markets and they, they had just set off um, a pool of capital to look at um, these uh, like kind of new financial service and technology business models in Africa. And, um, and so that was uh, the guy's name, um, Arjun Acosta. Um, I, I kind of met him. And then, um, then I actually flew back to, to Washington on my way home and got connected to um, a woman named Monica Brand Engel from, from Axion, um, which was uh, a, an NGO um, that had invested in microfinance institutions and was also uh, had a pool of capital to, to start doing startup and venture investing. And so they, and they were just at the beginning of their journey. So I was like one of the first probably entrepreneurs they met, definitely the first in Africa. And uh, it was just this like, again, another moment of serendipity of, hey, we're building this startup out of Zambia with this huge vision um, and meeting these two investors saying, well, we're, we've got money that we're, and we're just starting to look at Africa in these new emerging business models of how technology can bring financial services to the unbanked and, and benefit like poor people, but actually have like scalable commercial business models behind them. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in today's uh, uh, kind of venture landscape, you, you crowd in money and you, um, you have competitive rounds and you're negotiating hard for valuation. But then it was like, really like there was like two investors <laughs> and, and uh, we just built relationships and with them. And then we, we brought a, a couple others that started to be interested on the impact side and uh, I think it was about a year after that that we signed our first term sheet um, for a $4 million investment round. And it was like a Series A investment round, which is um, you know commonplace in the startup world. But at the time, I remember like um, having a founder conversation where we're like, what does Series A mean? And like nobody had heard of this. It was, it was like an equity investment from global investors um, back then was just like it was a foreign concept. Um, and uh, yeah, and then... Um, uh, suddenly, like it was February 2012, we found ourselves with like four million dollars in our bank account and two global investors, and um, it, it got harder after that. <laughs> but I'll, I'll pause there. I'm sure you'll have some more questions. Um, so, so just to, just to fast forward to now, like where, where is Zuna now? Have, like, did you exit the business, or what's what's happened to Zuna? The short answer to your question is like we we failed to achieve our our vision and like failed to win, but. Um, really, the the meaning of the book is like the the role of failure in order to win. And um, I left quite um, uh, like almost borderline depressed, I'd say, like quite down in the dumps because um, it, it wasn't a great exit. Uh, my tenth anniversary, I announced I was leaving. We had just had a forty million dollar fundraising round collapse. We were laying off most of our staff. Um, right, it was not how I envisioned leaving. Um, and this like this billion dollar cashless Africa dream. Um, didn't didn't materialize, uh, but then looking back, I'm like, you know, we created an industry and an ecosystem. We we uh, uh, had 25 percent of the adult population in Zambia's active customers. Uh, we were, uh, you know, we moved two and a half billion dollars of transactions over the ten years I was there, um, and then like some really deep pocketed competitors came in and started attacking us. And and as you know, the the world goes, like that's kind of generally what happens, right? It's like um, you know, Google didn't invent search, right? There was like Yahoo and Netscape and AltaVista before that. And um, so, so this is like a, a very much an innovation and disruption story. We were, we were first to market, and, but we, we had so much impact along the way and just um, like incredible successes and, and like very high highs. Um, and so I, I kind of outline in the book um, like these failures and, and how, how we kind of learn and push through them 
um, in order to have like these successes and these wins. And a lot of them were um, the hard parts around uh, like co-founder dynamics and, and like becoming a team and going from like individuals fighting with each other all the time to like a, a high powered, um, like, you know, high performing um, co-founder team, uh, managing a board and managing investors. Like that, that was a huge disruption in the business um, when suddenly we had board meetings with investors in the U.S. and and uh, now we're like you know, miles apart physically and also culturally. Um, and then at the end, um, you know, it, it was uh, failing to win where we had, a, like I mentioned, the, uh, this $40 million investment round collapse. We, we, were, we were evolving into a digital bank um, for, for consumers and small businesses across Southern Africa and uh, ultimately um, had like a, a private equity funder uh, pull up very late in the round, um, got into a bunch of uh, shareholding restructuring issues that we couldn't resolve, got attacked by two telco competitors. Um, and uh, we had like, like the big learning for me is like we had uh, a, a big consumer base, the best brand, an amazing product, a great team, exceptional culture, um, but we ran out of cash, right? And we, we didn't have the, the money to really compete and scale that up. And, and uh, we, we managed to survive, um, so that, that's something that I, I am proud of. Like my, my last year there was incredibly tough uh, where we were like shrinking down the company and um, evolving into a new fintech um, that my co-founder Brett is, is spun off. Um, and uh, I, I left like to a very different company than, um, than it was a year earlier. Um, but like Zona um, still exists in the market um, uh, today doing cash in cash out for a variety of, of players in, in Zambia, like banks and telcos and, and uh, payment provider companies, uh, but it, it's not into the B2C consumer services we were. And then there is like a, a new B2B fintech called Tilt that has emerged from the ashes and kind of spun out of that, um, that my, my original co-founder Brett is in charge of. Um, so it was, yeah, it was an incredible, incredible journey. And uh, the, the failing part was actually the hardest to go through, but the, the, the best experience, if I could say, like, I almost feel like incredibly grateful to have like experienced that and, and, and survived in Africa. Uh, what, which failure would you say taught you the most about entrepreneurship that you're kind of taking into your new startup now? Yeah, um, the, the biggest failure, like there was a lot of them, but um, the, the, the one that I really uh, probably learned the most of is around people. And uh, uh, I, I end the book with uh, a set of um, uh, kind of five virtues to live by and then um, uh, 10 team principles and uh, 10 business principles um, that are kind of like the algorithms for like how I think about business and how I think about like team and culture. And uh, the one that kind of jumps out is like on the team and culture side, um, which is our principle now of um, uh, building with the fewest right people, because it's born out of a fa- of, of multiple failures, actually, that we, we sometimes we didn't learn our, our lessons well enough from of getting money and then spending it on on hiring too quickly and like getting into this mentality of like hiring ahead of the curve and like you have to hire you have to get like great people but if if you if you grow your headcount too quickly um like first it it um it, it like grows your costs and your overhead um and uh and if your your revenue doesn't come um as planned which it rarely does because as entrepreneurs we're always over optimistic so like costs generally spike after investment round but then revenue is deferred right so you, you kind of can get in a really bad situation if uh, if you like take on your costs too quickly um, and then you don't have that flexibility and it's like once you take on people and fixed costs it's, it's really hard to, to change that 
Um, but then the bigger issue is like um, you have like all of these new people problems uh, because, you know, humans, we're all very complicated people and, and trying to find um, uh, like people that um, fit the company and the culture um, that are aligned with like your, your, your vision and your values and your purpose um, have the right skills and experiences and abilities to do the role um, can work in like a startup space. Like there's all these variables that make it extremely hard um, to find the right people. And uh, the more, more people you have that are not quite the right people, like it actually compounds all of the people problems that you have. Right. And then, then you spend all your time um, managing the people and building the culture, which is all like important stuff. But um, you, like in my experience, you then like stop managing the business and you stop focusing on your customers because it's just like dealing with like internal politics and team building and culture building. And um, so this principle of like um, build with like the fewest right people is like um, being like really diligent on, on just trying to like hire, like hire slowly. But like, I always ask, like, can we find another way of doing this without hiring another person? Can we automate something? Can we add a feature in our product? Um, is there like somebody's job that they're not maxed out on? Can we like, you know, can we change our, our structure or our functions? Right. So, so like um, making hiring like the last resort. And then when you do hire um, going through like the, the screening and recruitment process and, and being like really diligent about like that person. Um, but then also knowing that like when, when you hired somebody um, and the more senior they are, the more impact this will have. Um, but it's like, you won't know whether that's the right person for six months. Right. So, so you need, you need like off ramps of, of like, uh, like good communication and check-ins. And if, if there's equity involved, like vesting, like all of these things that kind of like make a breakup, um, uh, like, you know, amicable, but um, not, not to the detriment of the company if, if you need to pull the, the trigger, but um, being also very deliberate around like, um, you know, a 30 day, 60 day, 90 day, 180 day check-in. And, uh, and then make those decision points around like, is this working for you? Is it working for us as the company? And, and it's, it's mutual because um, with a person, it's also like their life, like they can work for anybody. So you, you want to make sure that the, the fit is right on both sides. And then, then once you find it, it's like magic, right? You find like the right people and then uh, all, all, the, all the problems suddenly start to, to disappear. You find the wrong people and you hire too many of them and the problems grow. I actually agree with you on that being one of the most challenging things is hiring. I went through a period where I kind of I made a few mistakes in hiring and then I rushed into it. We needed a new sort of person in product, hired quickly. And from that one person, we had a whole mass exodus of people leaving because of that person's just lack of cultural fit. Um, and from there, we had to rebuild. So I, actually, I built this playbook on how to hire people for the whole team to use, where we took our company values and evaluated people, or the, the new hires against those values. So we could, we could identify if there would be a good cultural fit or not. And once we got to that stage of kind of figuring out how to hire, our growth just went like crazy, you know? So it's, it's, that, it's a challenging, like missing piece that most entrepreneurs just forget about. I would love to read your playbook. <laughs> so this, and it, it's, you're so right, hey? Um, and and uh, when you're inside the company and you're in like these, uh, the role, like you have, everybody has to go from the individual contributor to like a people manager to a leader, right? That's like the natural, um, you know, and, and when you're a founder, it's the hardest thing to do because you start off by yourself, right? Where it's like, I do everything and I make all the decisions by myself or just me and one other co-founder. Um, and uh, then you get money and you're like, I got to hire people and then I got to manage them and I got to praise them. Um, and then you, you, 
you know, you, you need to then take another step to being a leader afterwards and like a, a leader of managers. And it's, it's a very hard journey to, to walk. Um, so obviously this is like later on, you start hiring once you raise your, your first round of funding. What, what advice would you give to a first time entrepreneur, like a, a first time founder looking to get the business off the ground? What's one lesson you've learned through all those, those failures over the years that you could share for them? I would say like always put your customer first and never lose sight of that. That would be the, the biggest learning. And like in addition to the people stuff, like that's obviously critical, but um, it sounds simple. Um, it's everybody says I'm customer centric, but it is actually so hard to do well. And uh, in the early phases, like when you're just like hustling to get product market fit, um, trying to, to um, you know, really identify, um, you know, that, that perfect customer. And then I, I actually believe product market fit is something that needs to be discovered. It's not something you can push on something. It's like you, you need to like, you know, test and experiment and sometimes throw some things at the wall and see what sticks. But um, getting to a point where, where you like know your target customer inside and out um, and not just like from a transactional point of view of like, oh, this is a, you know, a person who like, you know, buys my service like three times a month and this is how they use it. It's like, you know, what do they, what do they want to be when they grow up? What is their, you know, their home situation? Like what it like, you know, of, of course I'm not suggesting being too, too intimate, but uh, you, you really do need to like know who your customer is as a person and, uh, and then like why they would want to, to use your product or services, why they would want to pay for it. What value does it create for them? What possibilities or opportunities does it open up? Um, what are some of the reasons why they would reject it or, or, or not want to work with you? And I, I think the more laser focused you can be on that objective in the early days, um, and especially as a founder, like doing it yourself, right, of like walking, um, you know, in the shoes of your customer and, and empathizing with them and talking to them, um, like that also becomes a culture of how other people that you bring on board will, will work and operate. Um, but then like getting more systematic about maintaining that when you, you start scaling, because what I see as a mistake that many people make, and I, I've made also several times, is like you, you kind of get product market fit like at an MVP or pilot stage. Um, and then you're like, okay, now we just need to scale it. And then, then you hire a sales force or you, you like launch a, a, a referral service or some, whatever the scaling mechanism is. And then you end up getting like a whole bunch of customers that are not like the ones that you tested with. Um, and then like a bunch of them churn. And then you're like, why? Right. Um, it, it works for like the, the first 10, but it like when I went to 100, like, you know, 70 of them hated it. Um, so I, I think uh, just like staying as focused as you can on, on that customer and um, it, it becomes harder and harder uh, when the company scales and, and the layers of management that like um, come from the, the CEO downwards. Um, and one of the things that I, I did at Zona, um, which was uh, my favorite uh, time uh, when I lost total touch with my customers was I took a month off um, from the business and I just went and I actually did like a customer immersion trip and I spent a full month just like driving around, like working with our customers who are agents and like across Zambia and Malawi, like using our product, doing money transfers with them, um, spending the whole time in the field, eating dinner with them afterwards. Um, I made a, a bunch of videos about this because um, I had somebody follow me around um, and to like figure out how do we capture this experience and share it with all of our staff. And it was amazing the insights that came out of that. Um, not only from like a motivation point of view for like our staff morale, but um, suddenly people were like, oh, I, like uh, engineers were like, oh, that's like such an easy fix. Like I, I see that this person has this like, you know, this 
frustration with a feature on our product, but I can fix this in like two hours. Right. And uh, if, if you're not focused or, or attuned to your customer, you, you lose all of this nuance um, that, that really makes the experience magical. Yeah, it's true. Like, like for me, as CEO, I had my calendar open every afternoon. The customers could book time in with me. So like they, they, they could get to meet me, ask me questions, complain, <laughs> obviously loads of complaints. So I did that. And I, I, I would also like manually reach out to new customers every week. So every time we had a new customer signing up, I'd email them, reach out to them, see how they're doing, like a proper personalized email written by hand every single one just to learn firsthand about what they were facing and why they came to Sendable in the first place. Um, so yeah, I agree with you completely um, on understanding the customer. Great ideas too. Love that. <laughs> just like, yeah, having office hours for your customers. So you, you have this principle of prototype and test before building. Can you share some examples of how you adopted this principle in the early days and how it helped you scale over time? You know, th- there's this concept of an MVP or like minimum viable product. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I think most people... Um, or there can be a misconception around this needs to be like a, a tech product, right? It's something that you code or you build and it needs to like, you know, the, the minimum tends to get lost or the viable tends to get lost in like that MVP definition where you actually end up overbuilding um, or you you build something that's not viable. And so um, with Boost, like we, we knew we had this idea of a, um, a user experience um, for uh, ordering you know, an ordering product embedded into WhatsApp that uh, informal retailers could use to um, uh, see a whole catalog of products that they would might want to order with transparent pricing. And then they could press a button and then uh, uh, they would show up at their door. And if they ordered more and more, they could get access to like goods on credits and working capital to help them boost their business, uh, which is kind of where the name boost came from. And um, so my, like my very first PowerPoint deck when I was, I was, uh, uh, starting to fundraise, I I, I just mocked up uh, uh, like a phone image and I, I had like a, a fake menu on it. And I'm like, this is what the product's going to look like. But um, we didn't build the product. Um, what we did was um, <clears throat> my uh, one of my co-founders in Ghana, Isaac, um, went and got, uh, I think, initially seven customers that were like these women-owned grocery stores in, in Accra, the capital. Um, they would either just hand um, text um, lists of, of the, all the different products that they would order, or they would write it down and take a picture and send it to them on WhatsApp, um, full of spelling mistakes, no direct formatting. Um, it was just like a, you know, a mess, but it was, it was kind of a company artifact now. And, um, and that was one of where the insights of using WhatsApp came, because this is how, um, how people were doing this. And then, um, then he would take that list and he would go to the market and he would buy all these products from all of these wholesalers that they would normally buy from and then um, just hire a taxi and put all the goods in the boots in the backseat and then drive back and drop it off. Right. And that was the MVP where like for the customer, they're like, I can write things down, take a picture, WhatsApp it to you. And it shows up at my door tomorrow. Right. And, and um, on the back of that, we then like I've recruited a, my co-founder and CTO um, who then said like, Hey, I can like, I can build this. Um, and now it's like a, a full sophisticated order management and customer management software. Um, like we have like the working capital embedded. We have like, we're in multiple countries, but, um, and, and it, you know, the, the first, um, the first cohort of customers we have, um, we're at like, uh, you know, um, it's amazing. Like the lifetime value graph of this, they're still like our best customers. Like they're just they're growing like crazy. Um, and it's been, all the challenge since then has been trying to replicate that. But um I think that was like a prototype and test before building. And if we had done, if I, if I go back 10 years, um, 
what I would have done um, as a first-time entrepreneur is I would have said, okay, I need to actually hire a development team or an engineering team. Probably would have overhired. And then I would have built an app. And then I would have tried to get the customers to download the app. And I would have told them how great my app was and why they should use it. And nobody would have used it. <laughs> and and we, you wouldn't have actually been a viable proposition because we never would have tested, like, will somebody use WhatsApp to, to, to send us an order? And then will they will they repeat it if, if we, like, buy the stuff and show up at their door? Um, so, so that's the example I would give for that. That's, that's, that's a brilliant story. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, obviously, we have a lot of founders listening. Uh, where can they get your book or maybe follow you online? Where's the best place? Yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Mike P. Quinn. Um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and the book is available on Amazon, um, Kobo, Nook, depending on, on where you want to buy it from. I'm hoping to get it in stores because uh, uh, I, I self-published um, through a and, and, and have a, uh, on, on an online distributor um, called Ingram Sparks that can get it into uh, bookstores and libraries. So feel free to request it uh, from your local bookstore and, and maybe they'll order it and stock it. Um, and, and also I should say there's a, it's, it's a paperback, there's an ebook um, and on Kindle, and there's also an audio book that I narrated myself. So you can get that on Audible. And the book's called Failing to Win, right? Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. Take right. care. Thanks, Gavin.